Part 4 It was a week after Rome that I first met Imogen. I say met, although I realise this is somewhat of an overstatement. It would be more accurate to say that I spotted her in various locations around my house, the way a birdwatcher might spot a chaffinch in his garden. Every time I got closer, trying to identify her chief characteristics, you both immediately took flight. Now I was close up. I didn't like what I saw. What had happened to your other friends? What had happened to Holly, for instance? I used to enjoy hearing your mini string section when you practiced together. Or what about that girl from the stables? Abigail, was it? That good old-fashioned hearty girl who loved looking around the shop. I always thought she was lovely. These were studious, freshly aired girls the type of friends that justified your school fees. Imogen was something different. How different, I couldn't quite tell, but I needed to find out. You must be Imogen, I said, to the face behind the fringe, when I cornered you both on the stairs. I must, she told the carpet, and then you gave me that unforgiving stare you had recently cultivated as if I had violated some secret pact simply by identifying your friend. Did she know about what had happened in Rome? I have no idea what you had told her about me or what you said to each other in your room. Your music drowned out your voices, and that was probably its point. Did you ever read the book on philosophy I bought you for your birthday? If you did, you might remember the section on Plato's cave. Well. Let me tell you that to be a parent is to be permanently confined to that cave, forever trying to understand shadows on the wall, shadows that only half make sense and may be easily and disastrously misunderstood. You can never understand what really goes on in the world your child keeps from view. The reports you hear from her mouth are the shadows against the rocks. Shadows that can't be interpreted without stepping outside into the light. Terence! Cynthia was calling me from the shop. Terence! Terence! You see, that is what I had decided to do. Ever since Rome, I had decided to stop trusting your mouth and start trusting my eyes. We're going out you told me that Wednesday afternoon. Oh, I said, may I ask where? Terence, called Cynthia, her voice rising now to a theatrical pitch. In a minute, I called back. Then softer to you. Where? Around the shops, you said, in the minimalist fashion I was becoming used to. Fine, I said. Fine. You expected more, I could see that. Some kind of obstruction, but I gave you nothing. We'll be back, you said, later. What time, you expected, but I gave you fine. The defiance that had creased your forehead softened into blank confusion. Okay, you said, almost as a question. See you later. All right. See you later. And see you too, Imogen. You left, and I watched you walk out of the back door, 
into that fearful day. I ran into the shop. Cynthia, can you look after everything here for a bit? I won't be long. Your grandmother gave me one of her unforgiving looks, that tight, crinkled mouth offset with those tough eyes that once had her cast as Hedda Garbler. Terence, where have you been? I was calling you. Mrs. Weeks came in wanting a word. I was upstairs. Listen, I've got to nip out. But Terence... And so I left the shop and followed you, out of cave antiques, out into the light. I followed you down Blossom Street, through the city walls, and down the length of Micklegate. I held my distance when you disappeared inside a clothes shop. I held my breath when you crossed over the road, turning your head in my direction. You didn't see me. You carried on, over the river, onto Oosegate. I bumped into Peter, the vicar, and he blockaded me with mild smiles and charitable words. He asked how we were bearing up. Fine, I told him, although the anxious looks over his shoulder probably gave a different story. Honestly, we're getting there. We have our bad days, but... I saw you turning left, heading out of my view. Listen, I'm terribly sorry, Peter, but I'm in a rush. Another time. I ran towards Parliament Street and saw two crowds of youths loitering around the benches near the public toilets. The nearest group was made up of boys sitting on stationary bicycles, or standing, eating chips, sucking on cigarettes, or typing into their mobile telephones. Boys wearing the kind of clothes Reuben always wanted, trainers, tracksuits, their faces shaded by caps or hooded tops. The warm fuzziness inside my mind returned for a second. I recognized one of them as the small boy I had seen vomiting his innards out onto the pavement the night Reuben died. He nudged his friend and nodded over to the other group. The boy had his back to me, but turned, smiling. The smile died as he looked across. It was him. It was Denny. I followed his gaze over to the others. I scanned this second tribe, boys with odd haircuts, dressed for the French Revolution, a rather rotund girl with a painted Piero tear on her cheek, T-shirts with macabre designs and gothic fonts, the remorse, the pains of sleep, the Cleopatras, daughters of Albion, instructions for my funeral, Teenage Baudelaire's, plugged into music machines or eating bagel sandwiches. My heart fell as I spotted you right at the very centre. The boys buzzing around your beauty as I had feared. I saw one of them talking animatedly to you and Imogen. He seemed older than the rest. Rake thin, dressed in tightest black, and despite the weather, he was wearing a blood-red scarf. He had a long, pale, fleshless face with sleepy eyes. A cadaverous face, Dickens would have said. What was he saying to make you both laugh? I itched, no, burned to know. There was someone else, on the furthest fringe of that group. A boy I recognised, but didn't know why a tall, overweight boy trying loudly to fit in. He had blonde hair with a pinkish fringe and wore thick-lens glasses. 
and then I realised it was Mrs. Weeks' son, George. Up until recently, he had always accompanied his mother on her Saturday morning visits. The reason it took so long to place him was that George Weeks had always struck me as a quiet, studious kind of child. For all his heft, it had been easy to imagine him bullied, what with his bad breathing and shy manner. And having had his father teach at the school wouldn't have helped matters. I remember once trying to get Reuben to talk to him, as George was a year above him at St. John's. But your brother slipped away and made an excuse, as was his fashion. I remember the letter I had found in his school bag. Perhaps Reuben resisted George because he hated Mr. Weeks, or perhaps it was simply out of allegiance to his tribe. I don't know. I have no answers. I wondered if Mrs. Weeks knew her son mixed in such circles. I wondered if she knew her asthmatic child was a smoker. I wondered what she would do if she did know these things. Anyway, there he was, being loud and boisterous, trying like all the others to steal your attention. And there I was, peeping around the corner of Marks and Spencer, as invisible to both groups as the thousand shoppers and tourists that swarmed around. It would have been a risk to move any closer, so I had to stay there, unable to hear a word except for those of the African lady with the loud hailer filling that carless street with the book of Revelation. The kings of the earth and the great men, she raged with her fundamental anger, giving proof of nothing except its own doubt. Denny's group began to laugh at the woman and throw chips at her, all except Denny himself, whose dark, unreadable eyes were still staring at you. And the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. I saw Denny walk away from his group, past the doors to the toilets, and over towards you. The boy with the cadaverous face, the Uriah Heap face, turned and said something that Denny ignored. And then Denny spoke to you, and you spoke back. And I wished I could have read your lips, but all I had were the words of warning boomed angrily in my direction. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne. The words bulging her eyes, her eyes bulging her words. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Uriah Heap pushed Denny away, and Denny pushed him back, as the others tightened around them. Chips and insults flew through the air. Denny won the push, and Uriah fell at your feet. I saw another of Denny's tribe wade in. It was the shaven-headed boy whom I had seen at the tennis courts, kicking Uriah in the stomach. You looked at Imogen, scared, stranded in the middle of all this. I had to do something. I started walking towards you, but things calmed. Denny's tribe pulled the skinhead away as Denny himself disappeared out of the scene. Imogen helped Uriah to his feet. I stood stuck to the ground as you walked away with your companions to the rising cheer of Denny's friends. 
Any moment you were going to see me, and I would have no excuse for leaving the shop. None that you would have believed. And after Rome, I couldn't afford to push you further away. Inside the sun-red darkness of a blink, I saw Reuben crooked on the ground, and I took this as a final sign. God shall wipe all tears from their eyes. My watch told me it had been an hour, and enough of the old Terence was there to return me to the shop to help Cynthia on this busy afternoon. Where on earth have you been? she asked me, in a hiss quiet enough not to disturb the old couple having a browse around the furniture. I found it difficult to answer. I had to... I went to... Bryony was... Cynthia closed her eyes and released an exasperated sigh. You didn't follow her, did you? The old couple glanced towards us and made their silent decision to leave. Yes, I said. Yes, I did. I followed her. But I'm back now, aren't I? I don't know. Are you? Are you back, Terence? The back was given further emphasis with her ascending eyebrows. What is that supposed to mean? Cynthia inhaled, preparing for a verbal onslaught. But she changed her mind, her tone softened, her eyebrows lay back down. She stared over towards the spot where the old couple had been standing only moments before. Nothing, Terence, nothing. I just think you might need someone to talk to. Someone? What someone? About what? A third party. A bereavement counsellor. Someone you don't know and can open up to. I found it so helpful, you know, when Helen, knowing that I could go somewhere every Tuesday afternoon and sit and blubber away and make a show of myself. No, I said. The idea of sitting on a plastic chair in a room filled with mental health leaflets and the smell of cheap instant coffee, talking to a total stranger about all this, well, it was abhorrent. No, I don't think so. She smiled, hopeful. Well, perhaps you should talk to me. Perhaps we should talk together. Perhaps it would do us both some good. It's not healthy, you know, to keep it all caged in. You can make a monster of your emotions by ignoring them. You need to open the doors every now and then. You need to let some air in. I sat down on the wooden stool while Cynthia remained seated in the chair. Perhaps, I said. And it was a faint but sincere perhaps. A soft echo of the old Terence, the Terence who knew what good advice was and how to take it. He was such a kind boy, she said, the breadth of her smile increasing in line with the sadness in her eyes. Yes, I said. He could be. She chuckled at something. I remember when he was at the bungalow and he said, Grandma, why do you have all these twigs in vases? And I gave him that book to look at, Andy Goldsworthy. Do you remember? He liked the ice sculptures. 
Wow, that's well cool. How did he do that? It's so strange, isn't it? It must have only been about two months ago. A Sunday. He still wanted a toffee after his meal, though, didn't he? Oh, no, he was never too old for a piece of Harrogate toffee. No, I said, struggling to remember that same Sunday. No, he wasn't. Cynthia filled the afternoon with anecdotes and stories from that finished and irretrievable world. I smiled and nodded and mumbled, but had little to contribute. In truth, I was too busy thinking about you and praying you would stay safe. The prayer was rewarded. You returned at five to five, alone and intact, hating me no more and no less than when you had left. Your father and I have had a good chat, haven't we, Terence? Cynthia told you as you stood in the hallway. Yes, I said. We have. Cynthia's widened eyes and nodding head gave my words an unwarranted endorsement. You smiled for your grandmother's benefit. Oh, you said. Right. Good. No more than that, I think. And you trod softly upstairs, away from us, while Cynthia's whisper tried its futile best. See, there's nothing to worry about. She'll be all right. She'll find her own way home. Now come on, be a good boy, Terence. Why don't you make us a lovely pot of tea? If you had always been a dream of a child, then Reuben was the dark sleep I could never comprehend. I struggled to compete with Cynthia's anecdotes, partly because even while he was alive, Reuben never let me in. I had to pick up whatever clues I could, fragments of evidence that never gave me the complete picture, the vague comments of teachers, the half-formed monosyllables that rumbled at the back of his throat, the sound of his feet walking across his bedroom, the friends he used to visit but never talked about. Yet there were occasions when I would gain a sharp glimpse into his state of mind. One incident in particular I remember very well. Now when was it? You were practising for a school concert, so you still weren't home. That would make it a Wednesday, wouldn't it? Yes. And I'm reckoning it was about a week before you both turned fourteen. Yes, I'm sure it was. Anyway, the other details are much clearer. I was in the shop, aware of Reuben's presence only as a series of sounds. The turn of his key, the slow clump of the back door as it closed behind him. I'm sure it was at this point I said, how was your day, or something of equivalent non-significance? He didn't answer. Hardly unusual. He was probably lost in his own world. He might simply have been ignoring me. Whatever the reason, I thought nothing of it as I was having a bit of a nightmare with the bureau I was trying to restore. After however long, I heard feet leave his room and head for the bathroom, then the sound of running water from upstairs. He had the tap on at full blast. I left the bureau and went upstairs. Pausing on the landing, I heard something else above the water. Now, to describe it, the noise. A kind of panting, I suppose.
what sounded like fast and heavy breathing, but accompanied by an occasional whimpering. In retrospect, I realize I should have opened the door sooner, but I didn't. This inaction, I hastened to add, was not due to any kind of parental lethargy, but was rather a father's intuition. When a man happens to hear his adolescent son panting heavily in the bathroom, it makes certain sense to hold back from intervention. So I held back, and tried my very hardest not to think too much about it. You see, at that time I still believed there were some things that a parent shouldn't inquire about. I imagined I was protecting my son from his own shame. It was only when his whimper became more pronounced that I decided to intervene. Reuben, what are you doing in there? He didn't hear me, or at any rate he didn't answer. The water kept on, so I spoke a little louder. Reuben, do you really need that much water? Now I was closer to the sound. I realized it was one of pain and not pleasure. He switched the tap off, and I heard his heavy breath. Dad, he said, I'm just... I... I won't... Panic and pain competed in his voice. I tried the door. He hadn't locked it. Maybe he'd forgotten. Or maybe, subconsciously, he'd wanted this to happen. Maybe he wanted me to swing the door open and see what I saw what I still see as vividly as if it was a second ago. Your brother, in front of the mirror, turned towards me with wide-eyed dread. There was something in the basin, but I didn't notice that at first. What I noticed was the blood. It began in a deep, shining scar by his left cheek. My God, Reuben, what have you done? He didn't answer. I think he was too ashamed, but the information I needed was in the basin. His toothbrush, cradled there, its bristles pink with diluted blood. You did this to yourself. I looked at the scar again and realized its purpose. He had been trying to rub off his birthmark. He had been standing there all that time, brushing away at his own skin. Reuben. I was speaking softer now. Reuben, why would you... The smack of shame, the pain, the leaking blood were all working to weaken him. He turned pale and wilted sideways in a kind of half-faint. I moved fast and held his body. I saw to his wound. I pressed a plaster onto his face. I gave him a paracetamol. I don't want Bryony to know, he said. I won't tell her. I said, we'll just say you had an accident playing rugby. I don't play rugby. Football, then. You never believed that, did you? At least now you know the lie wasn't Rubens. I asked him, obviously, why he did it, but never heard an answer. The standard parental condolences were offered, and in my arrogance, I believed they might have had some effect. In truth, he probably just wanted to leave the bathroom and the eyes of his prying father as soon as he could. I stayed there and washed the last remnants of blood from the brush. 
Even after it had all gone, I kept the tap running, not caring a fig about the wasted water, and found a strange therapy in the sound of it blasting through the white bristles and down the drain. Come on, Terence. Drag yourself out of the quicksand before you sink any deeper. Right, the next incident. Cynthia's grand meal out. Yes, you didn't go, do you remember? Bryony, I called. Bryony, your grandmother's here. Are you ready? Cynthia was standing in front of the mirror, combing her hands through her freshly dyed black hair and running through various thespian poses. Liz Taylor, eat your heart out, she said. I kept calling you. Bryony? Bryony! Oh, Terence, hasn't she told you? Told me? Cynthia pointed a black nail up towards your room. Other plans, she whispered. What? She phoned me an hour ago. Phoned you? On her mobile. Phoned you on her mobile telephone. When? I told you, Cynthia said, exasperated. An hour ago. Well, I'm afraid, Cynthia, you've been misinformed. She promised you she was coming, and she's coming. Now, Bryony! Bryony! The taxi honked outside. Bryony! Bryony! Your voice, somewhere above. What? Why did you tell your grandmother you weren't coming with us? I'm going to Imogen's you said with cool defiance. Imogen's? At which point Cynthia's fingers played a quick four notes on my arm, her nails shining like onyx jewels. Apparently her friend's very upset, she whispered. She's just split up with her boyfriend and wants to have a girl's night with Bryony. You know girls like sleepovers, don't you? Now come on, Terence, don't make a big hoo-ha. I went upstairs, and you handed me a piece of paper you had already prepared, complete with Imogen's address and telephone number. You assumed, no doubt, that I would do nothing with this information. A third baritone blast of that taxi horn and Cynthia's voice, Come on, Terence, we'll be late. And me looking directly in your eyes, saying, So, it's just going to be you and Imogen? Your eyes conjured their wide innocence. Uh-huh. And how, may I ask, are you getting there? Imogen knows a pimp who works this part of town, and he's kindly offered me a lift, you said, before puncturing your tees. Imogen's mum. She's picking me up. All right, I said, thinking of Cynthia. I trust you. Even if that had been true. I would have still spent the night in panic. In the taxi, we passed an accident near the racecourse. A mangled car, high and hunched like an angry cat, nosed up with the barrier. Poor soul, Cynthia said, as a raised shape in a blanket was pushed into an ambulance. Yes, I said, and wished I had your grandmother's empathy. Wished I could feel for a faceless victim rather than my daughter, 
in the back of a stranger's car, driving to a house I had never seen. At the box tree I smiled and nodded my way through the meal, giving myself indigestion as I wolfed down my grim-lipped turbot, listening to the tale of when Cynthia tripped over in a long-past production of The Tempest. I hardly remember anything about those people, her old Amdram friends. Well, no, I can remember one or two. I can remember Ray, an infuriating man with a face like a Toby jug, who found great sport in vulgarizing my name. So, Terry. Is that right, Tell? Pass the wine with your tezzer. He kept on testing me with quotations as his wife cringed and shrank by his side. He who aspires to be a hero must drink brandy, he said, as he leaned back in his chair and stared at the wine list. Dr. Johnson, in case you didn't know. Are you a brandy man, Telly? No, I told him. No spirits for me. He stroked his preposterous chin and looked at me in a rather smug fashion. Didn't think so, he said. I believe it was at this point Cynthia started talking rather loudly about her life-drawing classes. Would you ever take your clothes off, Tell? asked the Toby Jug. For art's sake, I mean. No, would you? Well, if old Ollie Reed saw no shame in it, I don't see why I should, he said. A man next to me came to my rescue, that homosexual chap. Snowy-haired, canary-sweated, facially reminiscent of a neatly groomed camel. I think you've met him before. You saw his widow Twanky in the Aladdin pantomime years ago. Michael, is that what they call him? Oh, Ray, I don't know, he said. Aren't you more Ollie Hardy than Ollie Reed? The table burst into wild guffaws, and the Toby Jug threw a stern glance at his giggling wife. Later, Michael's sombre voice in my ear. Cynthia's told me everything. I'm so sorry. It must have been impossible for you. I met him at the theatre once. He was on work experience, wasn't he? Having trouble with that damn donkey. Yes. Yes, I said, staring down at the fish skeleton on my plate. All the time in my mind. Where were you? What were you doing? Were you in the car yet? Were you strapped in? Were you going where you said you were going? And I felt rather ill with it, with all those people between us, all those people occupying the physical space between you and me, all those personalities, all those narratives we had no part of, who wouldn't care if you stopped existing. You'll have to excuse me. I remember going to the toilets and calling the house to see if you had gone and listening to that depressing bleat of the ringtone for over a minute. Then I tried your mobile telephone and was informed by a female replicant that you were unable to answer. Back at the table, I couldn't cope with it, with the oppressive lightness, with the nothing talk of those guests, with the sickening cheesecake or my palpitating heart. I wanted to go. I wanted to leave. 
I should never have gone there. I was so out of place. A miserable caterpillar among the social butterflies. What was the point of it? I had only gone out of duty to Cynthia, after all her help. But now other duties were taking over. It must have been 11.30 by the time we eventually arrived back. Cynthia insisted on coming in for a late coffee, but I couldn't settle. I have to call Imogen's mother, I said. Oh, Terence, don't be such... I'm sorry, Cynthia, I'm phoning her. I just want to speak to Bryony, that's all. I just want to check she's safe. Cynthia shrugged a surrender. It's your daughter. Do what you want. Right, I said, picking your note out of my pocket. I think I will. We drove out of York and fast through twisting country lanes. Cynthia was furious. I was over the limit. In more ways than one, she added. But what was I meant to do? As there had been no answer to the number you had given me, I was spiralling fast into thoughts of car accidents, rapes, abductions. Now we were heading towards the address, hoping beyond hope you had written the correct one down. I had told Cynthia I could have dropped her off at home, or called for a taxi, but she had decided to come too. I don't want you doing something silly, Terence. Ah, yes, something silly. Before we reached the village where Imogen supposedly lived, we detected a dull golden light somewhere ahead of us. Turning the next corner, we saw it. A fire in a field, with people dancing around. It was a scene from before civilization, or after it, beyond the apocalypse. A ceremony of victory, or initiation, or sacrifice. We pulled into the side of the road and waited a while. She's there, I said. Oh, Terence, you don't know that. Come on, let's keep driving to the house. No, look, she's there. I pointed towards a girl, a dancing silhouette against the fire. It was you, and Cynthia knew it. She sighed. Leave her. What? Leave her. You can talk to her later. Tomorrow. Are you joking? No, I'm not. For God's sake, think about it, Terence. If you went over there now, she'd never forgive you. These things stay with a child, you know. She said this mournfully, and I wondered briefly at the humiliations her own childhood had brought her. I'm sorry, Cynthia, I said, but I want to deal with it now. She's my child. What if something happens to her tonight, while she's in that state? Fire, alcohol, boys. It's hardly the most comforting combination. Cynthia turned to me, light words passing her dark, painted lips. You don't know if she's in any kind of state. Now come on, Terence. Let her enjoy herself. I was getting crosser. Look, look at them. Christ's sake, look, they're out of their minds. They've probably had a bit to drink. They're teenagers. It's a Saturday night. 
She leaned in close and spoke in a deep whisper. Be not afeard, the isle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. Cynthia mistook my frown for a query. The tempest, she said. Maybe she was right. Maybe I was being over the top. Maybe her wise witch's face was about to win me over. But then I heard it. The scream. A scream that gave me the same ache as when I heard your brother hanging. Indeed, now I am reliving that scene. I do not hear your scream at all. I hear Reuben's in its place. But at the time, I knew it was you, and I knew precisely what it meant. You were in trouble, terrible danger, and we were the only ones who could protect you. That was her, I said. What was her? Your grandmother's question pursued me out of the car. Terence, I think you're making a terrific mistake. I ignored her and clambered over the fence. Cows were close to the road, away from you and your friends. They were lying down, sleeping their empty sleep. I called your name. Bryony! My voice axed its way through the boy's laughter. What were they doing to you? I had no idea. No, not true. I had ideas, and these ideas pushed me again. Bryony! Three girls, four boys, throbbing orange by the fire, standing there like the world's last survivors, and turned towards me. Dad? Dad? It's all right, I said. You're all right. Laughter of a different kind now, trapped and tight like flies in a jar. I looked among them. I saw Uriah Heep with his thin child-catcher arm around Imogen, the other boys I'd never seen, and George Weeks, laughing loudest of all, raising his bottle like a trophy. You walked fast towards me. Then your face was there, full of anger and shame, flashing gold. What are you doing? Your tone was disbelieving, betrayed. I heard you scream. Were they trying to hurt you? I pointed to the nearest boy. Was he trying to hurt you? That boy? Who is he? Was he trying to hurt you? You were upset. I thought you were hurt. I can't believe it, you said. I can't believe you. Just go away. Disgust made a stranger of your voice. You sounded like you hated me. I was numb. I couldn't speak. Behind you, the fire crackled, and drunken conversation began to bubble. You wanted to be with them. You wanted me to disappear. You said you were at Imogen's. I phoned and there was no answer. Your grandmother and I came to look for you. Not even a shrug. I heard you scream. You looked away and said it again. I can't believe you. As though I could evaporate with the right evidence. 
I thought you were in trouble. Just leave. Please, Dad, just leave. Yeah, shouted one of the boys. Just go away. I'm not leaving without you. It's midnight, for God's... What time were you planning to go home? Never. You were drunk. I could see it now. Hear it. Smell it. The wind switched and brought smoke towards us. I grabbed your arm. You're coming with me, young lady. You slipped my grip and ran further towards them. And then the changes, the tingles, the sliding between stations, the dark on top of dark. It was as though everything, even the fire, was set behind black gauze. I tried to follow you, but felt strangely off balance. A short way into my pursuit, I tripped over something, landing close enough to the fire for a spark to singe a hair off my hand. I turned to see George Weeks, an ominous white vision through the dark veil, a grotesque colossus above me, a juvenile Nero, blonde and overweight, a baby swollen to a man. So near the fire, his face had a monstrous appearance, with his white pallor rendered devilish red, and his eyes invisible behind his glasses, two gleaming squares of light. I pushed myself up off the grass and stood facing him, trying my best to ignore the sensations in my mind. George Weeks, does your mother know where you are? Does she know you are smoking and drinking and tripping adults into fires? Does she know? At which point, as you may recall, he insulted me loudly. F*** off! He was inebriated beyond all reckoning, and he thrust forward. Have you lost all respect for your elders, George? What's... what's happened to you? My dulled senses stopped me dodging his hands. He pushed me. I staggered back, but didn't topple. George looked around for laughter that never came. Leave him alone, you said. Leave it, Georgie, you dumb c said another of them. A boy. The vulgar, archaic word hit George like a stone, and he retreated from me. In his place, you appeared. My beautiful girl. Slowly, the black gauze lifted. I won't forget this, you said. We walked back to the Volvo. Behind us, one of the boys made a noise like a dying aircraft. I'm your father. It's my job to look after you, even when you think you don't need looking after. One day you will thank me. Your grandmother was initially silent when we got to the car. She didn't understand any more than you did. You did say you were going to Imogen's, she eventually said, without conviction. Your father was worried about you. He didn't mean to make a complete show of himself. I glanced into the rearview mirror.
and saw you stare out at the dark fields and farmhouses, at unseen primitive lands enclosed by dry stone walls, where fathers once commanded without question. I heard you scream. From ten miles away? I phoned Imogen's mother, and there was no one there. We were worried. Cynthia sighed, for your benefit. Discomfort at the we, I suppose. She decided to stay with us in order to keep us on our leads, but said she had to disappear early the next morning. Life drawing or something. When we arrived back home, you went straight to bed. I don't even think you used the bathroom. I sat down on the sofa and Higgins strolled onto my lap. Happy? Your grandmother asked before sipping her glass of brandy. I sighed. It's not a question of happiness. She laughed, a laugh sadder than her usual cackle. I looked at her. I looked past the cabaret singer's makeup and the aged skin and sensed your mother there, sharing a joke that shone inside those eyes. No. So, Terence, tell me, what exactly is it a question of? I couldn't answer that, so I answered something else instead. You're different, I said. You're a different type of person. Of course, this prompted a Cynthian scowl and an audible eruption of disapproval. Oh, yes, enlighten me, Terence. What type am I? I trod carefully. The coping type. You cope. You get by. You've got a, I don't know, an inner peace, I suppose. An acceptance. I don't have it, you see. I just don't have that capacity. You would have thought I had slapped her. Red anger overpowered her makeup, and those dark, heavy eyelashes widened like dangerous plants. Oh, listen to yourself. Honestly. You don't seriously think there has been one single day in the past fifteen flaming years when I haven't woken up and yearned for her still to be here. You don't think I ever accepted that I lost my daughter, do you? Or Howard? Or that I am in any better position now to cope with the loss of my grandson? I've cried myself to sleep God knows how many times. I wake up in the middle of the night and feel like I could scream with it all. Nobody accepts these things, Terence. But what can we do? What can we do? These things have happened. We will never know why, if there is a why to know. I get up in the morning and get on with things. Because what's the choice? What is the alternative? But don't you dare think for one little minute that when I climb into an empty bed, or when I think of my poor daughter lying on that floor, or when I see a tin of Harrogate flaming toffees, that it's any easier for me. The only thing I accept is that I am still alive, and other people are still alive, and while we are still sharing that same crack of light, we ought to be making things easier for each other. That's my type, Terence. 
That's my bloody type. This tirade exhausted her and had frightened Higgins out of the room. A long silence was left in its wake. I'm sorry, she said at the end of it. I didn't mean to shout. It's probably just the brandy. No, Cynthia, I said. No, you're absolutely right. It was a stupid thing to say. I'm sorry. And I meant it. I really think I did. Well, the main thing is we don't let Bryony suffer, she said. Yes, I said. Of course, you're right. And I went to bed that night feeling I was truly able to turn over a new page, a blank one, and write a better future for us all. But of course, and as always, I was wrong. The next day was written in the same descending style I was growing accustomed to, with Terence the Tormented Tormentor, about to take a further plunge into his designated role. I dreamt it was you. I dreamt you were there, where he was hanging from the lamppost. You lost your grip, and I woke up, knowing I had to keep you close, keep you safe. When Cynthia had gone to her art class, I went into your room, I tried soft words. I tried to offer an olive branch. We were both partially to blame, I said. I know I shouldn't have embarrassed you in front of your friends. I'm sorry. And I'm sure you were aware that you shouldn't have lied to me. You didn't want to listen. You didn't want me there at the foot of your bed. Please, Dad, just leave me alone. I just think you should say sorry, that's all. I've said sorry, and I'll say it again. Say sorry, and we can forget about it. No. Apologize. You lied. Bryony, if you don't tell me where you are, how can I know you're safe? Apologize. No. Apologize. At which you disappeared back under your covers and made a sound like a near boiled kettle. I became angry. Something switched inside me, and suddenly I found myself losing control. I sat there, listening to my own tense words, and wondered what had got into me. At that moment, a new plan occurred to me a plan fueled by desperation, by anger, and by this new, dark force closing in on my soul. Well, Bryony, I said, it is a tragedy for me to accept it, but it seems that we have now reached a point where firmer action is required. If you are unable to be honest with me, or to admit your own mistakes, or to show any remorse for these mistakes, then it seems I am left with absolutely no choice but to lay down some rules for you to abide by. Rather than risk the excuse of a memory lapse, I will write these rules down, and I will stick them in the kitchen for you to read. Now, I want you to remember that these rules are to be followed to the letter, or there will be strict 
consequences. <sighs> Your response, dulled by the tight blankets that lay over you. Well, Bryony, there is no point setting rules unless there are consequences for the rule-breaker, and I assure you that if these rules aren't followed or are willfully misinterpreted, then you will be punished accordingly. I hesitated, while my mind turned to the possible punishments I could inflict. If you persist in breaking the rules, then I will be forced to sell Turpin, or I will move you to another school or I will forbid you from leaving the house. Do you understand me? I left you and went to my desk. I looked ahead at the curtains I never pulled open anymore, and then I took the fountain pen from the lacquered case as its pre-Raphaelite nymphs watched me with concern. My hand, trembling with this sudden and alien anger, pressed the nib to the paper and began to write. Rules for your own safety. 1. You must not visit Imogen. If Imogen must be seen at all, it is to be on these premises. 2. You are never to be out of the house after 7pm, except on cello evenings, or when you are being chaperoned by myself or your grandmother. 3. You must always eat your meals at the table, so we can enjoy a little conversation. 4. You must refrain from playing the noise you euphemistically refer to as music, unless you can do so at a civilised volume. 5. You will not inform me of an imminent departure when I am with customers in the shop. You will give me prior warning and details of where you are going, and then I will consider if I approve. 6. You will not leave the house for longer than one hour at a time without a significant reason, such as when you are at school, the stables, or the music college. 7. You will not walk home from school. When term begins, you will be picked up by myself every day without complaint. 8. You will help in the shop on Saturdays. 9. You will not watch television of a corrupting nature or communicate with strangers or males of any kind via your computer. 10. You will not drink alcohol. 11. You will not spend mine or your grandmother's pocket money on magazines or other corruptive forms of literature. 12. You will not travel in motor vehicles unless they are driven by myself or a driver approved by me. 13. You will not enter into a physical relationship with a member of the opposite gender until I am satisfied that you have reached the requisite level of emotional maturity.